experienced resurrection, but then we believe that he also died again later, only to hopefully experience resurrection in the world to come, right? So here are all the times we're finding a smattering of times, a handful of times in the Bible. Elijah raising the widow's son. Elisha raises the Shunammite's son. Elisha's bones cause resurrection to happen. Uh, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. Jesus raises son of the widow. Jesus raises Lazarus. Herod thinks John the Baptist is raised. Apostle Paul raises Tabitha. Apostle Paul raises Eutychus, right? These are experiences where somebody has been raised from the dead, and somebody might even say they were resurrected from the dead, but it's kind of like lowercase r. It's not something that lasted for that person forever. But we also have in our Bible full corporate resurrection of the dead that will occur at the end of days, right? And we have these resonances in our text as well. So here's some places where corporate, meaning all of humanity, um, experiences some sort of resurrection. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. This is in 1 Samuel 2.6. Or Ezekiel 37. I will open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. I mean, it's a massively beautiful resurrection picture there, yeah? Everyone whose name is found, this is from Daniel 12. Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitude who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to eternal others to shame and everlasting contempt so we have these references to a core belief in the ancient israelite culture that resurrection was something to expect we even have it in archaeological record. Um, there's this beautiful, incredible place called Ketaf Hinnom. Um, the Hinnom Valley is one that wraps around the western, southwestern portion of Jerusalem, the old city, and then goes out towards the, Ed, the, old, the Dead Sea. And Ketaf means shoulder, and Hinnom is the name of the valley. It's also kind of where we get the word Gehenna, the valley gay of Hinnom. In case you ever wondered where hell is, it's right here. Um, and occasionally in the winter, it does freeze over. So here, <laughs> true story. Okay, so Ketif Hinnom over here was excavated by um, my professor, archaeologist, Dr. Gabby Barkai, Gabriel Barkai. He excavated this area in 1979, they went over to try to look at what was happening in this larger portion of Jerusalem, sort of outside of the city walls, even the very, very old city walls and then the walls you can see today from Saladin. And there he started to excavate with a group of um, helpers, volunteers, 12-year-olds to 17-year-olds from Tel Aviv. And as they were excavating, they found some burial chambers. When they were looking for those grave markers, now when you look for graves in the ancient Israelite world, you know that bodies are unclean, you don't bury, you don't live where the bodies are buried, right? So if you found graves, you know that that's not where people were living, and the people were living interior to that. Kind of like if you went to an art gallery and you saw somebody stole a painting, but you saw the frame still staying there because they just pulled that out. That's how the graves work in the ancient Near East, where it kind of shows you what, what existed inside. Well, as they went, they were looking at these burial chambers where we have this phrase, gathered unto their fathers. Um, one time it exists in Genesis 49. He charged them and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. This is um, Joseph talking to his sons, like Jacob talking to his sons, bury me with my fathers in the cave that's in the field of Ephron the Hittite. Um, back to Abraham's cave. Now that phrase, gathered unto their fathers, sounds like really poetic and beautiful, but it's actually also a phrase 
that refers to a physicality, that the body would be laid out in the tomb, and then as the body decayed, the bones would be collected and then pushed under into, underneath like sort of the burial pavement and gathered quite literally unto the fathers. But when the ancient Israelites did this and others, ancient Canaanites and others, they would often leave items um, for the dead. Sort of like when you get into the world to come, we anticipate that you might need some things. And so they would bury the dead with additional items because they had an anticipation and expectation that there was life after death. As uh, Gabi Barkai was excavating there, there were some kids that were bothering him slash being 12 and 13 and 14 years old. So he said, okay, fine, just go in to this one cave and just do your thing, like go and clean it up. And as they were in there with a hammer being totally ridiculous, they smashed through and the false floor was shown and all of a sudden something incredible was discovered. Lots of beautiful and interesting things, pottery, and these two very, very, very tiny, tiny one-inch, tiny silver rolls, scrolls, looks like that, about this big. When they opened them up, they found, I have like one Kevin bought me here that I love so much, like this tiny little silver scroll. They opened it, it took them three years to figure out how to open it without destroying it. And Gabi Barkai still today like is chagrined that it was a 12-year-old kid that found his most amazing discovery ever. They found the ancient, the most ancient uh, text we have outside of our Hebrew Bible, and it is from directly from Numbers, which we say every single Sunday. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the Israelites. Here's the priestly blessing. You shall bless them. And here's what they found on that silver amulet in that grave. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make God's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up God's countenance upon you and set upon you God's peace. So cool. Now, if I was getting buried and I had that, I would want somebody alive to keep it. I'm like, I'm not going to need this. But there was a belief that we should bury the dead with these things. There was an expectation that these words would carry into the future and that people would continue to live again. That somehow some resurrection would be there. That there would be some setting things to right. Now, we know in the Second Temple period that this concept and idea of resurrection even developed further. Um, in our book, Second Maccabees, chapter 7, there's a smattering of verses where upon total persecution of the Jewish people for keeping the Jewish laws, the Anti Antiochus Epiphanes was persecuting everybody and killing the Jews. And here are the verses that show there was an anticipation that things would still be set to right even in the midst of the persecu persecution. When one of the sons who was being persecuted was at his last breath, he said, You accursed wretch, you dismiss us from this present life, but the king of the universe will raise us up to an everlasting renewal of life because we have died for his laws. There's like an expectation in the second temple period that if you kept God's commands, that you would be raised again to new life. That there was something bigger and greater than this one single moment and that our death here did not end here. It was not a period but a comma as Mr. T used to say to my friend um, who was dying of cancer a long time ago. Death is not a period, but it's a comma. When, uh, in verse 14, we have another attestation here. When he was near death, what, he said, one cannot but choose to die at the hands of mortals and to cherish the hope God gives of being raised again by him. But for you, bad, evil king, there will be no resurrection to life. And then verse 29, do not fear this butcher, the mother says, as the 
torturers are killing her sons. She says, don't fear the butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that in God's mercy, I may get you back again along with your brothers. So an anticipation of resurrection. The Essenes had it too. We find in the Dead Sea Scrolls this line, for he will heal the wounded, resurrect the dead, and proclaim glad tidings to the poor. The Sadducees were sad, you see. They did not expect the resurrection. Do you guys remember this part? In fact, Paul can cause an entire riot in the book of Acts because he says, I'm being persecuted for the resurrection of the dead because I believe in that. And immediately you have this debate. So it's not that all Jews in the second temple period or all Israelites were listening and believing in the resurrection. There was enough of a debate, but belief in the resurrection was the majority view. And we see of the Pharisees who were very much found their teachings in rabbinic Judaism that they also were continuing to uphold this belief in resurrection. Rabbi Gamliel is asked, how do we know that the dead will be resurrected? Sounds something similar to conversations Jesus had in our Gospels, yeah? And Gamliel said, well, we know it from the Torah, from the prophets, and from the writings in the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 31. It's written, you shall die and rise. So there's an interpretation right away that there was teachings of the resurrection of the dead. Now, this was debated, and even still today, you can find these debates where people say, no, 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 that's something like Christians made up, and we kind of like just grabbed that resurrection thing and took off with it, but we can see actually in our text that it's something long and deeply held within our story, in our narrative. Um, and also in the Second Temple period, we have another attestation here in Mishnah Sanhedrin. Uh, these are they who have no share in the world to come. So here's who's like not getting resurrected. Those who say there's no resurrection of the dead. You're out. Like if you don't believe in it, you don't get it. Like that's it. Um, and that they say that the law is not from heaven and the Epicureans, the Greeks, they're not getting in. So whether or not you believe all of that, this rabbinic thought was around during the time of Jesus. There was even a daily prayer said with these 18 blessings. And this daily prayer is called the Amidah because you say it when you're standing. And in the Amidah, there is a whole section just about the resurrection of the dead. And they say to God, you sustain the living with loving kindness. You revive the dead with great mercy. You support the falling, heal the sick, set free the bound, and keep faith with those who sleep in the dust. Who is like you, O doer of mighty acts? Who resembles you, a king who puts to death and restores to life and causes salvation to flourish? And you are certain to revive the dead. Blessed are you, O Lord, who revives the dead. So this prayer around in the time of Jesus and just after and still today that remembers this and hopes, has this hope for the resurrection. But truth be told, all of us probably sitting here, our primary view of the resurrection does come from like this guy, right? Jesus. This is what we celebrate every single spring when Easter comes around. We celebrate his resurrection. And when we think about the resurrection and when we consider it, we're doing so not from the point of view of just like, oh, isn't this a nice story and it makes me feel really good? Or we can think about how it's been winter and now it's spring and so things that were dead seem to be coming back to life and we have all this imagery. When we think about Jesus and the resurrection, we can't just start with Sunday morning. We start with Good Friday. And we know that Good Friday brought massive horror, grief, shock, loss and despair to all of the disciples of Jesus. That the very mention of even crucifixion was taboo in polite Roman company and circles because it was the lowest form of capital punishment reserved for slaves and rebels. So the followers of Jesus and his mother and his family have all watched this horrific torture happen. And we can't forget that the resurrection story starts there. Because 
there's such power in these cruel acts, isn't there? And it can feel when you see such destruction and such pain and such suffering that there can be no hope on the other side of that. But after that long Sabbath waiting until they could return to the tomb, the women show back up and they're prepared to mourn, right? They are prepared to mourn their rabbi, their friend. They're ready with spices to care for his body. They're bracing themselves for the pain, for the grief, for the stench. Faced with the reality of that unspeakable cruelty of the cross and the violence of the Roman Empire, they're waiting for all of that, but instead, what do they find? They find the empty tomb, the stone rolled away, and they find an angel asking, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Why do you look for the living among the dead? This is core and central to the Christian story. We believe that there's something that happens after even the cruelest, most severe forms of death and destruction, we believe that life can still come. Without the resurrection, Jesus' followers would have just concluded with shame and sorrow that he was just another failed Messiah and nothing had changed and that the powers of Caesar, of Rome, and of the pagan overlords continued to rule, that they were still in charge, that death was still in charge. But the resurrection means that the darkest and strongest power in the world, the power of death itself, has been defeated. That the empires have lost their power and that death has lost its sting. So it's core and central to who we are as Jesus followers and as sparkers. See, we can't just have a church that's only, only love, reputation, reconciliation, and rescue. We also have to be people who believe in the resurrection and live out the resurrection in this world. Jesus' followers would come to believe the most shocking, scandalous claim that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection launched a revolution. Not just was he alive again, but all hope was alive again, that a revolution had been launched, and in so doing, empires were toppling, that the empires of this world were going away and instead a new kingdom and a new king were coming. That in fact, the cross had served as the enthronement of our king. The followers of Jesus didn't just believe this or feel like it was a nice ending or a good ending to a difficult weekend. They actually taught this to others. In Acts chapter 4, it says that people were annoyed that they kept teaching this resurrection to others. They taught it to others and they lived differently because of it. And many died as a result of this outrageous claim. You don't die for an idea. Not like that. You're dying because you really, truly believe and know that something has happened. The resurrection power of Jesus upends all other powers. The world's powers cannot stand alongside such a humble, sacrificial love. The world's powers rage at the idea of the first being last of the laying down of their lives, of the forgiving of enemies, or of the lifting up the poor and the humble and the vulnerable and the powerless. But the resurrection power of Jesus changes all of these other powers. It changes the entire economy. The empires, the nations, they pass away, but the kingdom of God will never fade away. This is what resurrection stands for. It's, it's the belief and the knowledge that we can have new life and that the world has been set to right, that the order of it all has changed again. Something happened that resurrection morning, and as a result, the world is a different place. 
When people are caught up in the meaning of the resurrection, they become then part of this difference. The story of Jesus's crucifixion, burial, and resurrection is about God's upside-down kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. It is a recreation. God is doing it again. I don't know if you remember just a few weeks ago when we started this series, we talked about recreation and we said that the creation story in our Bible doesn't exist to tell us only that it happened, but also it exists to tell us that it is happening again and that we are invited as followers of God into this recreation process to get our hands dirty, to start to work and take care of the garden, to be part of what God is doing in this world. The resurrection was not simply a surprise, happy ending for Jesus's followers, but it ushered in a glorious new beginning, a new creation. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate victory, not one at the very end of this present age, but right in the middle of it. With suffering and wickedness still rampant all around, we are in the middle of a covenantal promise being fulfilled, the yes in Christ and the still yet to come. In Jesus, that which happened, happens now and will happen again. We walk around as resurrection people. We do not mourn as those without hope. We walk around with the knowledge that this good life is now and to come. The resurrection is an invitation to see all that chaos that we talked about at the beginning of our creation story. To see the powers of evil and death and of the grave and of the darkness and of the abyss and of the empire and believe even as we are overwhelmed with that evil in this world, but believe that the hovering of God's spirit over the deep can call forth life and light and new beginnings and hope. This is our hope. Our hope is found in the empty tomb. That death is no more. This is the hope. We have a resurrection hope. So my question for us is, shall we be defined by the grave? Shall we be defined by the suffering and the torture of the cross? Shall we be defined by the chaos, by the empires who are raging and still grasping at little bits of power? The resurrection of Jesus declares, no, we are to not be defined by those things. We are to be defined by the resurrected life in Christ, the resurrection which changed everything, calling forth love, calling forth light, hope, new life, and inviting and commissioning us to go forth in this new life. When Pastor Kevin talked about this a few weeks ago, he said, we are actually commissioned to be resurrection people, that the resurrection commissions us to be agents of this hope and light and life in the world. I mentioned that one of our favorite questions around our house these days is when we see something broken and wrong in the world, we start to just ask the question, well, what can we do to bring love and life and light to this situation? Because as resurrected people, we believe that's possible. I've been um, doing a lot of thinking about um, the world, the climate, global warming, all of the chaos. And in part, um, this has been going on for, a, I think at least, I mean, truth be told, when I was in high school, I had Birkenstocks and a Save the Planet t-shirt. So it's been a long time. I grew up in Northern California. Um, and at the same time, four years ago, my hometown was ravaged by a wildfire that was unexpected. And at the time we kind of thought, well, that was weird. And I've grown up in this world and here in Northern California and my great grandparents lived here. We've never seen anything like this. 
for sure it was like this really one random weird event. But of course, as all of you know, we're now four years in and every year we now now have this thing called wildfire, like the fire season. And there's a color, isn't there, that the sky turns that we all know. And I don't know if you've had this experience yet, but when I see that color start to creep in through the broken windows, through the broken, like the breakthrough of the curtain in my house, I immediately have fear and trauma. My, my parents still live in Santa Rosa. And I remember four years ago when Phoebe accidentally woke me up in the middle of the night and when I saw that there were fires in Santa Rosa and I looked at my phone and went back to bed and I was like, wait, I should probably check on that. And then as I looked, I was like, that's very close. And then I couldn't get through because the lines were down and, and I was worried about my parents who are older. And then finally got through and we couldn't quite hear each other. So now it's stressful because you just hear yelling, right? Danielle, mom, Danielle, mom. It's three in the morning. I'm like, you have to get out. You have to get out. And my dad thought I was being crazy. And then he opened the door and they saw the flames on the hillside. And so they got out in two separate cars and it took them six hours, normally an hour and a half, two hour drive. And then they were mandatory. They were not able to return to their home. They came with just the clothes on their back and they were out for three, four weeks before we were able to go back. That's happened twice now in the last four years. And friends of mine, friends of my parents have left, they've moved. There's, there's no way they can rebuild. It's all, it's all different now. I can't drive to visit my parents without seeing the devastation on the hillsides and without seeing all of my friends that I went to preschool with and, and graduated high school with still suffering as a result of these losses. And we have friends who lost pastor friends who lost their home in Santa Cruz mountains this last year. Pastor friend who lost his home and his whole church in paradise. And I know this is just a very small part of what's happening. We are the most privileged of people here. And this suffering has been going on for a very long time. And I've not been paying attention. But I'm paying attention now. And so this last spring, I set about rewilding my front yard and my garden. Um, and this means to try to find and plant only the native species in your area so that the whole ecosystem can work and to like pack it in very deep so it's not actually so pretty anymore, but it allows all of the insects to be there and then the pollinators to be there and then the birds to be there. And I, I fuss over feeding the birds and I make sure there's always fresh water in my yard. And now I have, um, I'm very, very excited about this and, and I'm seriously obsessed. Like I'm obsessed with these monarch butterflies. As you know, they're endangered and near extinction. And so I've been planting milkweed for a couple years, but this year they finally like showed up and they like unbeknownst to me, like laid eggs. And now there's like caterpillars and every night, every morning I'm like, is the, so I have two chrysalises right now. You guys have these two beautiful green jewels and I'm obsessed. <laughs> I've like read every website about what to do if they fall. I'm ready with my dental floss to rehang them back up again. Like I'm so into these butterflies. It's such a picture of resurrection. That that there's life to be had, right? That this weird I mean, you guys know, like the caterpillar like turns to mush inside this thing and then it comes back out with this new life, right? And we as Christians love these resurrection symbols. But I'll tell you what's giving me life right now. It's the hovering over it. Because I don't know if you know this, like um, the people who are making the decisions about our climate, 
they don't call me to ask me when I think. It's really disappointing. If they would call me, I could just fix it right away. Um, but I have this way to rewild my little part of the world. And I have this way to just watch these few birds come in, although I've like sanctioned the birds away from the butterflies right now because I'm obsessed. Um, and, and I can hover over this life and try to do my part in the fixing and the restoring of the world. So, you know, Pastor Kevin's been leading this book club called, um, based on Catherine Hayhoe's book, Saving Us. And um, you all, many of you are part of those conversations. He's been reading on climate justice for years. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm like the louder, more stand on the corner one. And he is not as much the stand on the corner one. So when you hear Kevin say something like, this is the most definitive justice issue for our entire generation and for the world to come. And if we don't get this right, everything is going to change on this. And every other issue we care about, refugees, racial justice, um, centering marginalized voices, understanding um, the impact of climate change that's so disproportionately felt on the global poor. And understanding that like, Kevin is the one who's pushed me on this issue, not just to wear the Birkenstocks and have the nice t-shirt and care for the monarchs, but to get significantly involved. So as a result, because now I follow Catherine Hayhoe on Twitter, um, she posted a thing in August and said, hey, any pastors or Christians or clergy who care about this issue, you can sign up for this thing and you can go and help. And I was like, Kevin, you should do that. And he's like, I don't. I don't do that. I don't stand on the corner. And then I said to Jason, who was standing, it's like, you should go do that. And he's like, I'm not going to do it. I was like, all right, I'll do it. So I did not know. And I just very quickly signed up for this thing. I was like, eh, just fill out this application. Like, do you love Jesus? Yes. Do you care about the environment? Absolutely. So I filled out this application and I ended up not really knowing what I was doing, but what I, <laughs> what I did apparently was apply to become an official observer for the evangelical environmental network at the upcoming UN conference in Glasgow. And I was accepted. So, which is crazy also. <clears throat> Part of my, when I had the interview, one of the things I shared was not just our own coming to the awareness of the chaos and the hurt and the pain through these fire seasons. In just a year ago, having I'm the one, I'm the daughter who pays attention to the Twitter refresh to figure out if their home still stands, which means that every time I go and I talk to my mom in the middle of those weeks, and it goes, this goes on for two to three weeks at a time. When I go and I knock on the door, she opens up the door and she's ready. Her face is like, okay, just, you're going to tell me it's all gone. So we do this every year and it's not been all gone. We've, we've been lucky, but we recognize it's so fragile and so when I told this story and said, this is why I care about it. And I care about it because Stanford's now proven that our kids who've been exposed to wildfire smoke and all the toxins in the air are having permanent DNA changes and that they're going to be more prone towards lung disease and heart disease and cancers as they get older. And we're all aware, those of us who bought the purifiers and kept our kids indoors because we could, we're aware that there's many in our community who can't do that. And that disproportionately then in communities that are at need, that those children are suffering. And that there's already currently deaths happening because of this air pollution. So I'm aware of all that. I'm aware that we now know that babies are being born already with microplastics inside their body. We're, I'm aware of these things. That's why I talked about that. But I also talked about how I felt so frustrated that, that the people who are in charge don't call me and ask. But one of the things I told them was that 
some of those people call you guys. And if we could get our church to really commit to the possibility of looking at crisis and chaos and death and climate and raging fires and hurricanes and floods and say, yes, but if we just started to hover through the breath of life and because we're resurrection people, if we started to see God's presence hovering over that chaos as resurrection people, we think new life could be found. So I think you guys can do this. I think there are companies here that you work for that just like years ago, and I met many of you in this process through anti-human trafficking movements, we pressured companies to say, could you pull slavery out of your supply chain? And many companies did. Intel did. Many companies started to make decisions because of you, because we pressured them. So let's do the same. We're part of a place of significant influence and privilege. But the decisions we make or don't make hurt, hurt the global poor, hurt those marginalized, cause refugee crises at our border, cause suffering around the world. So I'm praying that you guys can help me hover over the monarchs, um, rewild our world. What a gift it's been to be able to be outside this whole summer together. And then look and hover over that chaos. And as Jesus people say, yeah, yeah, there's life beyond this grave. And we can build something beautiful for the generations to come. We can be people who are about recreation and resurrection and love and reputation and reconciliation and rescue. We can be people who look at the resurrection and say, it happened and it will happen again. And it's happening right now because we know through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the presence and the victory of Jesus, that we can start calling life out of these dark places. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians verse 11, chapter 11, that whenever we take communion, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we announce the Lord's death until he comes. We announce it. This communion table is a resurrection table. We announce this every time. When we take this cup, we announce Jesus's victory to the powers and the principalities. And we know that this confronts the shadowy forces that assert control over God's good creation and over human lives with the news of their defeat. That taking this cup shakes the dark powers that stand in the wings, waiting for people to give them even a small bit of worship so that they can use that power to enslave. But the breaking bread meal, the Jesus feast, announces to the forces of evil that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus has faced the powers of sin and death and beaten them. Jesus had been raised again to launch the new world in which death itself has no authority. And we are the people, the Jesus followers, who claim that resurrection and do all we can to see that resurrection power unleashed in our lives and in the world. And I'm grateful that this is a church that holds so tight and fast to the belief that there is life after death. 
and that there is life that we can call out and call forth over the chaos through the power of the Holy Spirit, just simply as followers of Jesus. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.